Good morning, and uh, my name is Tom. Welcome to the Leewood campus. We're glad you're here today, and we hope you sense a warm welcome. Uh, it's good to see all your smiling faces. You must have got some sleep last night. That's what I'm thinking. So, Well, memorial services are a part of everyday life, it seems, and uh, not only do we join in on memorial services and funerals, we want to honor the deceased, of course, to give our love for family members when someone dies, but we also realize that Memorial services and funerals inevitably confront us with our own mortality. This is true, it seems to me, both for the religious and irreligious. Death has a way of confronting all of us, doesn't it? And it presents to us fresh questions that death inevitably brings to each one of us. It doesn't matter the work we do, the age we are, whether we consider ourselves this morning a Christian or not, or we are seeking that out. In those times of quiet reflection, we ponder questions like, how much time do I have left? Will my life have really mattered? Will I be missed? What will others say about me? Is there more to life than this? Is the grave the very end? See, there is an intriguing and mysterious irony that confronts us in death, it seems to me. And it is this. It is mostly death that gets us thinking most about life. See, how we think about death shapes how we think about life and how we live our life. The topic of living our life well is a topic that Jesus has been speaking about a lot As the gospel writer Matthew unpacks the series we've been going through for several weeks now as we've trekked through Matthew. And Jesus has been talking to us about the good life, the truly good life, what it is, where it's found, how it's experienced in everyday life. And in our text this morning, Jesus is asked this very important question about the good life and particularly its eternal implications. How does Jesus answer this question? This is the question of the text. And I'd like you to turn to Matthew's gospel. If you have a Bible in front of you, electric or electronic or paper, it's the first book in the New Testament as we enter this text and as we address this very important question to our lives. Now, Matthew chapter 19 is where we are. And as we enter back into Matthew's literary stage, we need to see where we are in the context. In chapter 18, if you've been with us, Jesus has been teaching on the good life. And he has been saying that the good life is now available to all who follow him as his apprentice. Jesus will repeatedly push aside mere moral sort of veneers of externalism and he will get right to the heart of the matter. Jesus goes over and over to the heart of the matter. Jesus emphasizes in chapter 18 that the truly good life is a forgiving life. In other words, those who are forgiven, we discovered, forgive. Now, right on the heels of chapter 18, we have chapter 19, and the theme continues. Here, Jesus focuses on the truly good life of marriage and how we are to honor the permanence of the marital covenant. He also tells us that we have hope that he, just like healing physical diseases, can heal marriages as well. Jesus then speaks to the essential quality of childlike faith, And he reminded us that the smallest ones among us often are our biggest teachers. 
So we need to understand from a literary perspective that against this backdrop, imagine of childlike faith and Jesus welcoming little children, without a break in the narrative, as Jesus is blessing them and they're on their way, right in front of him is a young man, most likely a teenager. So if you're a teenager here or a young adult, this is where we are, from children to young adulthood. The young man asked Jesus this question. It's a big question. And in response to the question about eternal life, we find three revealing truths this morning that are developed in a progression within the text of Jesus' teaching. And if you are taking notes this morning, either mentally or on, a, on your electronic device or paper, I'm going to unpack those as we go through the text. The first one emerges starting in verse 17. And the first revealing truth about the good life that Jesus is talking about, it's this. It is not about how much you do, but who you know. Now, in verse 16, Jesus is respectfully asked this question. The whole text hangs on this, text, this question. Teacher or rabbi, it's a respectful address. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? The young man's question, young adult, teenager, is, is really a good question. It's a sincere question. It's bold. It's, and it's mostly very revealing to what he's thinking. Jesus will challenge the assumption this young man is making. The assumption that he can earn his future in heaven or eternal life by the good deeds he does now. But we must not miss, if we look at the overall stream of the text, and how it's woven together from a literary standpoint, that Jesus not only challenges his assumption, he will do that. But more importantly, he redefines what eternal life is. He reframes the paradigm of the young man's thinking about the future life. If you will notice, if you have your Bible open, there is this repeated refrain, and threes are really important in the Bible. There are three of them here again. And the repeated refrain is, follow me, follow me, follow me. Three times, 21, 27, and 28. And I want you to see that because the theme is primarily relational. Uh, Jesus believes so strongly in framing what eternal life is that it's very rare actually in his teaching that he gives us a propositional definition in John 17, 3. And Jesus says to his disciples in that upper room, this is eternal life that you may know God the Father and Jesus whom you or God has sent. This is important for us because the subject of eternal life, Jesus is reframing the paradigm. And it's important for us to grasp that we often think of eternal life, don't we, as something that begins after we die, right? That's often how we think about it. It's not wrong, it's just not full. Jesus is saying here, eternal life begins when a relationship with Jesus begins, whenever that is. So the implication is eternal life begins when we know Jesus. This guy's question about eternal life here in Matthew 19 again, reveals his grave misunderstanding that he can somehow earn eternal life, this good eternal life. But his grave misconception is really about what he sees eternal life to be. And again, we must not miss this. For eternal life is defined by King Jesus fundamentally, first and foremost, conceptually, metaphysically, as a relational idea. If it's a relational idea, then it makes sense, does it not, that relationships are never earned or achieved. Relationships, whatever they are in our life, right, are entered into and received. This is important to grasp. So the unfolding narrative is really a fun narrative in verses 17 to 20. It's a remarkable conversation that Jesus has with this young man. He knows this young man's heart. 
and that his heart is somehow being deceived into thinking he can earn it, right? He can eternal, earn eternal life. So Jesus plays the game with him. Brilliant Jesus plays the game. He says, okay, basically what he says, Jesus, okay. Uh, how you doing there in keeping all the commandments? So Jesus sort of maybe jogs his memory. I'm not exactly sure, but that's what it implicates or implies. And starts listing the big 10. That's the big 10 commandments, right? And uh, this guy is going along. You can just hear his mind. He's got this moral checklist, this religious checklist. And Jesus checkmates him at the very end when he gives the ultimate commandment that summarizes everything, the big kahuna, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors yourself. So Jesus is checkmating his self-righteousness here. And this guy keeps, you know, scrolling through in his mind. He's checking off all the religious boxes. And in a kind of smug way, it seems to me, he presses Jesus further. I'm not sure if he interrupts. It seems like there's a bit of an interruption. Look at verse 20. If you have your text open, the young man said to him, that's Jesus, all these things I have kept. Then he says, what do I still lack? Now, two things stand out to me about this young man's response to Jesus. First, I'm impressed. I mean, he's, his devout religiosity is stunning. I mean, he's kept all this stuff. That's pretty good for an old man, let alone a young man, right? Amazing. But really, the second thing we must not miss is this guy's blinding moral superiority. See, what is going on here is he wants to feel a sense of his moral superiority and his religious security. By getting Jesus, the most brilliant, well-known rock star rabbi of, his whole, of, of the whole land and, and his generation, to be an authority and to look into his life and say, no more boxes to check off, you got it. But that's not where Jesus lands. He doesn't allow this guy to sit smugly on his self-righteous religious hook. Jesus sees right through his uh, external moral veneer, doesn't he? He knows what this young man needs. It's not another religious list, not another good deed to do, to check off. What the young man needs is a savior who will give him a new heart and give him the life he longs to live. Now, perhaps it's my wild imagination. I have those moments. But I have this good hunch that Jesus, seeing this young man's sin-stained heart, must have smiled a bit at the moment. I mean, this young man, like a good lawyer, is making his case, his self-righteous case that he merits eternal life, the good life. He's going to earn it. Now, peering into this young man's blinded eyes and his self-righteous heart, Jesus sees a suffocating, life-destructive black hole lurking there. It's a black hole of idolatry. This young man's heart idol was preventing this young man from having any idea or any possibility of entering the truly good eternal life he's asking Jesus about. His heart is suffocating under the weight of idolatry. In this particular case, of money, possessions, and wealth. So Jesus, the great physician offers a radical prescription. Notice the prescription, verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, let me just pause there, this word perfect does not mean sinlessness, 
Throughout the scripture, the idea is wholeness, being unimpaired. It's like experiencing life we were created to live. It's a wholeness idea. But notice Jesus says to him, if you would be whole or unimpaired or complete, that is, this person you were created to be, this life you long to live, now go sell. Go sell whatever you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Now, what was Jesus saying to this young man? This text has been more abused and misinterpreted perhaps than just about anything. Some have taught that Jesus is saying, hey, the path to heaven is material poverty. If you have anything, get rid of it. But this interpretation is ludicrous, if not a damnable heresy, as they often say. Material poverty is not spiritual. Jesus, in other texts as well as his context in the entire Bible, puts to rest any idea that eternal life is something we can achieve. It is a gift we must receive, made possible by grace through faith in Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross and his glorious resurrection. So how are we to understand Jesus' teaching here? This is an important question. What is Jesus saying? I think we can get a good idea. Jesus, as he often does in Matthew's gospel, is getting right to the heart of the matter, and the matter is this guy's idolatrous heart. He is a very religious young man, and he made him, made him look really good. May have looked really good on the outside, which he did. I'm impressed. But he was a royal mess inside. The guy did not have a good deed problem per se. I mean, he was awash in good deeds. He had a huge, massive, big heart problem. And what was his particular problem? He loved his stuff just too much. It's interesting, this young man is very wealthy already. He must have inherited a lot of his family money, which adds more to the significance of this. But the young, wealthy young man wants to check off boxes, doesn't he? External religious conformity. Bing, 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 bing. But he cannot escape the gravitational pull of the wealth idol that has enslaved and suffocated his heart. Notice verse 22. This reinforces what's going on in the narrative. The young man's response is huge for us not to miss. It's telling. We are told more by his response than just about anything else in this text. What is his response? Notice verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away, and this word is downcast or sorrowful, for he had great wealth or possessions. This is one of the saddest, heartbreaking commentaries in all of the New Testament to me. See, it really wasn't just about being good enough to earn eternal life. That's where it starts. The problem was his enslavement of his heart. I mean, here's a very successful, material, uh, rich young man. He's living on easy street. But he's at a dead end street. He's materially rich, but he's spiritually impoverished. And Jesus sees it. I don't know if you've been watching the Olympics. But um, our family, and I love watching the Olympics. And uh, there's a lot of great stories. But perhaps the greatest, I mean, I can't imagine anybody getting more medals than Michael Phelps. I mean, is he a legendary guy or what? Amazing. And uh, one of the stories that has come out about Michael Phelps is, I mean, the most amazing swimmer and athlete perhaps of all time. I just can't imagine. What is it, 24 gold medals or 28? And it's just unbelievable. 
But one of the interesting things is in an interview with ESPN, Michael Phelps describes the despairing of his life. And you're thinking, this guy has it all. I mean, how in the world? Uh, if you follow this life, after the last Olympics, it melted down even more. He was arrested for a DUI in his hometown of Baltimore. In the interview, he describes his struggle to figure out who he was outside of the pool. And this is what he says in the interview. Listen carefully. He said, I was a train wreck. I was like a time bomb wanting to go off. I had no self-esteem, no self-worth. I'm going, what? That's my interjection there, sorry. <laughs> How is that possible? Then he, then he says, there were times where I didn't want to be here. It was not good at all. I felt completely lost. And at the lowest point of his life, all-pro linebacker Ray Lewis, who is a devout Christian, gave Michael Rick Warren's book entitled A Purpose-Driven Life. Pastor Rick Warren unpacks the truly good life Jesus offers in his book. And Michael reads the book and says, it has profoundly changed his life and his heart. See, it doesn't matter if we are the greatest athlete in the world, or we can't walk and chew gum at the same time. If we are the who's that or the who's who, it does not matter. We all have heart idols. And we all need radical heart surgery. See, Jesus is saying to this young man, what you need is radical sur surgery, buddy. You need to cut loose the idol enslaving your life. Get rid of your stuff. Go do it and do it now. It's urgent. Then you will be freed up as your heart longs for to follow me and have the intimacy your heart longs for and the eternal life you're looking for forever. What a tug of war is going on in this young man's life. <laughs> he knows Jesus is onto something. He knows Jesus has been reading his mail. No doubt. Jesus reads all our mail. Even our tweets, as they say. He knows it. He knows it. But he's in great tension. Now, let's step back for a moment. Let's not forget who is writing these words. If you've been with us in the series, you know that Matthew, the writer of the gospel, inserts his story into the text. Matthew, his whole life was centered on money. He was a tax collector. He was rich, wealthy. He would roll over anyone to get more money, his own countrymen. And when Jesus knocks on his door, he follows Jesus. If anyone knew the idol of money and stuff, it was Matthew and how Jesus freed him from that idol. Matthew could relate to this young man's struggle and you hear it pulsating in the text. If I have a sense, it's a sense, I cannot help but wonder if Matthew's eyes didn't well with tears. When he describes in verse 22 this young man walking away from Jesus, holding on to stuff and letting go of Jesus. 
It is as if Matthew is saying, and I think the words pick this up, oh, don't go. Don't go, young man. It's a dead end. But Jesus lets him go. There's no hint that Jesus says, oh, lets him go. Eugene Peterson, as he brilliantly does, paraphrases verse 22. He writes, crestfallen, he walked away, the young man. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and he couldn't bear to let them go. See, the first clarifying truth that is so vital of the good life that Jesus offers, it's not about what you do, it's who you know. The second truth emerges right here in the text and that it's not about how much you have, but what has you. The young man walks away And as he walks away, the text gives us this picture that Jesus turns to his stunned disciples who are standing there with their mouth wide open. There's no question. They are stunned. It's an awkward moment. It's silent. The dead air is overwhelming. It's suffocating. And Jesus seizes his teachable moment with his disciples. In verse 23 through 26, Jesus warns his disciples that the idol of wealth, riches and money are a particularly tenacious idol of the human heart. Jesus knew again that material wealth and money were good things. They could be helpful servants, but he also knew they could be some of the cruelest enslaving masters of the human experience. See, when money and wealth become idols, that is when they become ultimate in our lives rather than God, the consequences are devastating to our own life, to others around us, to the world. They blind us to spiritual truth, to ourselves and to ultimate reality. And Jesus, I think, is so great. He's always great. He interjects humor in the text. You can imagine his disciples, they're freaking out, and he jabs them with humor to kind of break the moment. In verse 24, he paints this picture of absolute absurdity. (laughs) He says, hey, guys, you know how impossible it is for this guy to get the truly good life he wants? When wealth is suffocating his life, it's like a camel going through an eye of a needle. And they must have laughed. But they didn't laugh long because they pushed back strongly against Jesus' words. Because as young Jewish boys, they had grasped this idea that money and wealth and material things was a sign, a corollary, if not causative sign of God's blessing and the path to a truly good life. That was the good life, the blessing of God and material abundance. So Jesus' words are absolutely messing with them big time. He's turning it upside down, inside out, and they blurt out. This is why they blurt out. Hey, Jesus, if the material blessed cannot enter the kingdom of God and experience this eternal life, who on earth ever can? Who can? And Jesus simply responds, doesn't he brilliantly, as he always does, by reminding them that God is very capable of giving eternal life to both the materially poor and the materially rich. Why is that? Because the truly good eternal life is not about our economic status. It is about our spiritual status before God and the gift of grace that is necessary to get it in any context. One of the finest New Testament scholars, particularly in the Gospels, is Kenneth Bailey. Kenneth Bailey uh, has such extraordinary insight culturally, particularly in in the Gospels. He grew up in the Middle East and is a brilliant scholar. We just lost him, actually, not too long ago. He writes with great insight. He he builds such beautiful insight when he talks about what it really meant for this young man to walk away. It's a little longer of a quote, but it's so important I want to read it. 
Bailey says, yet surely the ruler's deep grief is not just the result of his love of wealth. He says, more than this, he comes to the painful awareness that he cannot earn his way into God's graces. People of wealth, he goes on to say, are often proud of their achievements. They accept no favors, ask for no special consideration, and with exceptional effort achieve wealth. But status in God's presence cannot be earned. It can only be received with gratitude. Now notice, when a self-made person senses a need for acceptance in God's presence, his entire understanding of merit and worth must be painfully reevaluated. Now, notice where he goes. This is his brilliance. Absolutely brilliant. With God, there is no pulling up of oneself by the bootstraps. The self-confidence of the self-made person crashes and dissolves like a mighty wave on a sandy shore when eternal life is at issue. Jesus is saying the truly good life is not a self-made life. It's not a let-me-do-it-my-way life. It is a Godward life of absolute childlike faith and dependence and trust. Do not miss the connection of this text with the text before it. Material wealth and economic status is not a sign of God's favor or disfavor. It's a call to wise stewardship of whatever we've been given. See, it is very rare in the New Testament for Jesus to tell someone to sell all our possessions. This is a very particular case. And Jesus brilliantly navigates from heretical distortions about material wealth. This is not a prescription for all followers of Jesus. The two false notions that Jesus navigates away from, we must as well. The first one is all too common. We might call it the poverty gospel. The poverty gospel diminishes the goodness of the material world Again, that Jesus created, he thinks is good, by the way. And suggests explicitly or implicitly that material poverty is somehow spiritual. The other side, the second notion that's false, we might call the prosperity gospel. And that is an undue focus that values material things and suggests that material prosperity is evidence of God's favor. Both the poverty and prosperity gospel are heretical heresies and they're off the mark. And yet this text is often taught that way. See, what we need to grasp is at the end of the day, when it comes to the truly good life that Jesus offers, Jesus says the heart of the matter is not about how much we have, but how much of what we have has us. That's where Jesus is getting it. And Peter, he's he's freaking out here. He boldly jumps in and blurts out in verse 27. Hey, Jesus. It's a little of my imagination, but it seems like it to me. We have left everything to follow you. (laughs) Then what are we going to have? What about us? Me, 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 me. What about our future? And Jesus responds, and it must have just absolutely blew Peter away. Jesus' response gives us the third clarifying truth about the truly good life. And it is this. It is not about how much we give up. It's about how much we gain. Jesus says, let me paint a picture of the future for you. Follow me. This truly eternal good life you're looking for, let me give you a picture. Look at verses 28 through 30. 
Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or land, good, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Now, if you're newer to the Bible, Jesus' word about the future may be very unfamiliar to you. There's a lot Jesus is saying here, no question. Let me just highlight it quickly. What Jesus is saying, and he said it to his disciples in the upper room before he's getting ready to be crucified and raising from the dead. He says, I'm going to die, raise again, and then I'm going to ascend to heaven. i got work to do still. I'm going to come back and return to this earth. I'm going to come back dispense justice, dispose of evil once and for all. I'm going to set the world right and I'm going to usher in the new heaven and new earth. This is the future that you have. And those who embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior have this life to live. That's why Paul will say, for me to live is Christ and to die as gain is the ultimate win-win. And those who embrace the truly good life Jesus offers live each day with this glorious future in front of them. No matter the difficulty of our life, no matter our circumstances, no matter our health, whatever we're facing, the reality of the good life Jesus has for us now and yet fully in the future is our constant companion and joy. Jesus makes the point that the truly good life not only, though, has a great future reward, notice the implications it has present sacrifice. Following Jesus will be costly. Jesus is not diminishing the importance of the cost or the rewards, is he? Jim Elliott, a martyred missionary, said it better than anyone else. Jim said, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. C.S. Lewis, the Oxford professor who was an atheist for much of his life, who came to faith in Jesus, said it well as well. He said this, listen carefully. He says, nothing you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing you have not given away will ever really be yours. See, discipleship to Jesus is costly. No doubt, Jesus didn't hide his scars or the cross or his yoke when he invited us to follow him. But the greatest cost is non-discipleship. The greatest cost is not walking to Jesus and bowing before him and following him to the good life. It is walking away from him. The cost of non-discipleship is infinitely greater now and forever. In our text this morning, Jesus reveals three clarifying truths. We need to hold them in our arms, wrap them in our hearts, and stick them deep in our minds. The truly good life is not about how much you do, but who you know. It's not about how much you have, but what has you. It is not about how much you give up, but what you will gain. Jesus is saying the truly good life is more than just this life. You can't be good enough for it. You can't be rich enough for it. You can't give enough up for it. It's a gift from me. So receive it as a gracious gift. Become my apprentice and follow me in all of life to the truly good life forever. So let me ask you, are you living the truly good life Jesus has for you? Are you living it? Let me raise three questions for assessment. I would encourage you to write these down in your heart, to think through them today and this week. First question. 
What is hindering you from following Jesus more fully? If you were to look into Jesus' eyes and ask him, what do I still lack? Like the young, rich, young man? How would Jesus respond to you? What would Jesus say to you today? Would he say that I know you, you're mine? That you are one of his, that you've embraced him as Lord and Savior of your life through faith? That you are a true Christian, a follower of Jesus? That's an important question. If you've already made that commitment to Jesus, what are the idols in your heart or distractions in your life right now? that are hindering you from following him fully, being all in with him? Is it money and wealth or your career? Getting into that college, having the best grades? Has that become ultimate in your life? Is it a counterfeit God that has divided your loyalty and your allegiance to Jesus? Is it a relationship? Think with me for a moment in your life. A relationship that, if you're honest this morning, is more important than your relationship with Jesus. Is it the idol of comfort, sexual pleasure, or popularity with your friends? And is your life so overscheduled and overplugged in, and your mind so distracted, you can't hear Jesus' voice over all the noise? There's no time left to be in God's Word and nurture your intimacy with Jesus. What is it within you? What is it within me that resists the surrendered life to Jesus? Is it a prideful conceit of self-sufficiency? Is it fear of something? Bitterness towards someone? Laziness, sorrow, disappointment? What is it? What's hindering you? Secondly, what is holding you back? from living more generously in life. Jesus frames the truly good life in terms of generosity. We were created to be generous. Generosity is at the heart of the journey of faith. Jesus said it's more blessed to give and receive. That's not a trite statement. That's a currency of the kingdom. Are you living an increasingly generous life, friends? Are you increasingly generous in forgiving others and loving others, even when it's really tough? Are you choosing to become more generative in your workplace as you empower others who serve with you? Is it about them and not you and your advancement? Are you developing others? Are you choosing your vocational power and influence for the good of others to assist the marginalized and the vulnerable in our world? Are you choosing to become increasingly generous with your money and material possessions? If not, what's hindering you? Are you finding your worth or security in your portfolio numbers or the net worth instead of in your worth in Jesus Christ? That portfolio, that net worth, as good as it is, it can be gone like that. Poof. It's the fear of the future holding you back. Are you living an undisciplined life with poor financial management? What about an indebted, indulgent, impulsive lifestyle with no margin for generosity? What is hindering you? What's holding you back? Albert Schweitzer, the great philanthropist, said this, if you have something you cannot give away, you don't own it, it owns you. He's right. 
Third question, what is keeping me from living more hopefully? The words that Jesus gives us in this text are sobering, aren't they? But they're incredibly hopeful. Notice where the text goes, to great hope. Matthew 19 builds to the glorious hope beyond the grave. And it was C.S. Lewis who said brilliantly, as he did often, that it's those who think most about the next life who are the most effective in this life. The truly good life has eternity in mind. Every day. So are you keeping the hope of the new heavens and new earth near and dear to your heart? What's hindering you from a buoyancy of hope? Are you overly fixated and worried about our political situation in the country? It matters, it's important, but are you overly concerned? Are you filling your minds with too much news media? Are you too anxious about the economy or the future of your job? Are you looking for hope in the wrong places? See, it's not like Christians put their head in the sand and pretend the world is not the mess it's in. It's a terrible mess. It's that Christians tether their lives, their heart, their mind, their whole life to the good shepherd who is always with them, who is their constant protector and provider, the one who leads us even in the shadow of the valley of death. Last Sunday, after attending church services in Kansas City, Scott Schwab and his family made their way to Schlitterbahn Water Park. Little did they know their young son, Caleb, as he climbed that 17-stair, tallest water slide in the world. In just a few moments, he'd be with Jesus and they would discover his lifeless body at the bottom. It is so hard as a dad, as a member of our community, to get our hearts and minds around such a tragedy. Our hearts break for this family. But I was struck by Caleb's pastor's hopeful words broadcast over our entire city. Caleb was only 10 years old. But Caleb was a remarkable young man of God. I'm going to get this out. Hold on. Caleb knew Jesus. He followed Jesus. He lived a truly good life and he is living it now in a glorious way we can only imagine. See, some of our smallest ones are our biggest teachers. This is truly the good life we were created for, isn't it? The good life Jesus died for, the truly good life our hearts long for. And hear me carefully. The truly good life is more than just this life. It's not about how good we live or about how much we live or how long we live. It's about who we live for. Let's pray. Father, speak into the quiet spaces of our hearts this morning. May we see our hearts and your grace and may we respond to what you would have us be and do. In Jesus' name.